leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The high cost of drug development, the challenge of translational research, and continuing concerns with R&D efficiency has had entrepreneurs, investors, and drug makers open to experimenting with new models of innovation. Koi Pharmaceuticals, born out of a collaboration with the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline and Avalon Ventures, is one such model that's showing traction. With management expertise, R&D infrastructure, and a collaborative environment, Koi is providing promising startups with a way to accelerate their development in a capital-efficient way. We spoke to Jay Lichter, president and CEO of Koi Pharmaceuticals, about the Koi model, the challenges of cost-effective innovation, and what can be learned from Koi's experience. Jay, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about Koi Pharmaceuticals, its new model of innovation, and, and whether we've learned anything about increasing the efficiency of R&D. Remind people about the drug discovery and development environment about five years or so. This was when Big Pharma was suffering from the patent cliff, and the math started to sink in that these companies were not going to be able to replace lost revenue with drugs developed in-house. There was a, a lot of talk about R&D efficiency. How much concern was there over Big Pharma's inability to innovate and develop drugs cost-effectively? Yeah, so, I mean, that's obviously been a, uh, a story that uh, farmers been talking about a lot. Uh, you know, maybe a little less now because people have made some investments of how to change that, but certainly five to ten years ago, you know, it was a, it was a big problem, and it was even worse uh, then because uh, we're still coming out of the uh, you know, sort of economic downturn. Uh, there weren't a lot of biotech companies with you know early stage offerings uh, for for large pharma. Early stage uh, you know, discovery uh, was out of favor in terms of deal making. And so when you know big pharma in general realized that you know they had a problem innovating in house, they you know either grown too big or just you know, just hard in large companies to, to innovate, <clears throat> simply looking to go shopping at small biotechs, you know, there weren't, you know, hundreds of opportunities to look at. There were there were dozens. And so um, <clears throat> some real strategic initiatives had to take place in order to change that. I, I think it's fair to say there's been a, a big change in thinking, a, a move towards externalizing R&D as companies have 
sought to make deals at the earliest stages and form agreements with academic researchers. Like a lot of things, though, in this industry, everyone seems to be following each other. In general, has this solved the problem for the industry? Has it created new problems? Well, I mean, it hasn't solved the problem. And I'm not sure there is a solution other than hard work and, and, and getting lucky. You know, really, it's a extremely complicated um, you know, trying to understand enough biology to to figure out how to intervene in that disease state biology to to make a, a person sick from being sick and turning them into a healthy person. It's intensely um, difficult. It takes a long time, and you know, still ninety five percent of ideas fail before launch, and it takes ten to fifteen years um, to do that. And and it's a two billion dollar effort on a fully amortized basis, giving all the all the losses. So, um, you know, I'm not sure it's ever going to be totally fixed. Excuse me, what they got to call. But but things are certainly better, and and you know, being a little more capital efficient, um, being uh, taking some some things um, at risk. Um, are, are things that bad tech companies are, are really good at compared to large farmers. And I think, you know, investments that companies make, you know, into that sort of atmosphere, um, you know, do make things better. Uh, GSK is a, a big farmer that seemed to take a more thoughtful approach to open innovation, and it's tried a variety of different things to allow discovery to take place in environments that are more akin to innovative startups rather than a large bureaucratic top-down structure. How did the talks between Avalon Ventures and GSK give rise to Koi Pharmaceuticals, and what was GSK trying to accomplish? What did Avalon see as the opportunity? Yeah, I, I mean, it was you know serendipity. Really, um, started out with uh, a phone call from GSK. It was a fellow uh, named Lon Carden. And Lon and I had done a company in the early 90s. Uh, we were good friends. We were scientific colleagues. We were, you know, on the road doing deals. And, and you know, when the company uh, got acquired, you know, people all went their separate ways. Um, and then maybe it was 15 years, 10 or 15 years later, um, he finds himself as a senior vice president at GSK in charge of what's called alternative drug discovery. And he calls me up and he says, you know, um, you know, Jam at GSK now. I said, okay, yeah, hey, good to hear from you, Lon. I hope all is going well. He says, well, we have a problem. You know, uh, two problems. One is uh, we're having difficulty innovating in, in early discovery. This is probably 2012. And uh, he said, the second thing is, um, you know, the relationship between pharma and venture and biotech has gotten really bad. And this is really kind of the worst of the downturn of the market uh, towards the end. And he said, you know, is there something we can do um, together to to address both of those problems? And, you know, I said, well, sure, I'd love to. You know, it sounds, sounds really interesting. And so that led to, you know, a series of conversations that culminated in um, the announcement of our deal in April of, of 13, uh, where our goal was to, um, you know, start 10 uh, tech companies. Now, what it, in, in parallel, while those tests were going on, and, and maybe two or three years prior to that, um, I had been just out of 
It just sort of happens sometimes in the business. You know, I was running three companies, I was CEO of three little companies, and I decided to put them in the same space. And so it was very informal. We just rented some more space, and, and I had three companies there, and then that grew to five companies, and that grew to, you know, seven or eight companies. And all of a sudden, we had this sort of infrastructure of, you know, maybe 15 or 20 people spread across these, these five or six companies, um, and it was really capital efficient, right? I could have the senior team split amongst all these other groups. Um, I could easily manage the different companies because it was just, you know, going down to the next door. It wasn't, you know, trying to buy a plane going somewhere. And so it was really efficient. And so when we did the GSK deal, we took that sort of informal environment and turned it into something more formal because we knew we were going to need something more formal just because of the, you know, the sort of bureaucratic infrastructure of a large pharmaceutical company. And that's really what gave, gave birth to to Koi, which was, you know, we had the incubator space. It wasn't formalized. And then with the GSK collaboration, we actually incorporated Koi as a company and, and, and started using it to be a little more capital efficient. Well, what were the, the terms of the original agreement? And, and actually, it's, it's been renewed or up, updated. What, what is it now? Well, um, we haven't really just disclosed too many of the terms. There's a few things we've talked about. Um, what we did in the first agreement, um, we started seven companies. And under the second agreement, which is when we just raised a new fund, uh, we've done one company. We have another one. Hopefully, we're going to get done. And, and, you know, our goal is really still to get up to 10 or, or, or more companies. Uh, I, I think, you know, the basic terms are um, that, you know, we, we, you know, Avalon is capped in terms of the amount of capital we can put in. Um, and, and that dollar a month we put in, we can get a, a venture return on if there's success and if there's failure, then there's a money. They, they make investments based on R&D support, so they don't really get equity. And each company is targeted to have around $10 million of R&D, which three to three and a half comes from Avalon, the rest comes from GSK. And the notion is to start with a, uh, a clever new drug target, typically, but not always from academia, and make you know, small molecules or antibodies or peptides or whatever, um, and prosecute that to uh, to a clinical candidate, which is roughly a you know between twelve and eighteen months from the clinic, and then Glax would acquire the company and move on. And and uh, so those are more or less the the basic structure of how it works. Do, does GSK have rights to? Is it a right of first refusal? Do they? Have a, a buy or don't buy decision point, or what? Yeah, it's it's more of the latter. It's a buy. It, they have an option to acquire the company, uh, and the economics are all, you know, pre-negotiated. So when we, you know, we negotiated this back in in, you know, twelve thirteen. Um, you know, we got five hundred pages worth of documents of everything from stock purchase agreements, you know, uh, letters, articles of corporation for companies, merger agreement. Um, um, R&D funding agreement, um, I mean, all, everything is all pre-negotiated so that, that it becomes very uh, rapid. You know, when we get a decision with GSK through a sort of company, I mean, it's incorporated in a couple of days, and because of the way we have shared resources, I can staff it, you know, within a week or so. And because Koi does all the buying, we have credit, so we can buy things right away. We have capital equipment here. So, the, you know, the, the downtime from, okay, we're going to go to an operating laboratory doing experiments is, is really quite short. 
How, how does GSK measure its return on investment in this situation? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I think for them, and, you know, we talked about that early on, and it was Lon, and, and he said, you know, if they get one medicine out of this, it's probably worth it for them. And, you know, that's, I mean, in, for me, that's sort of a defeatist attitude about how, how difficult this business is. That speaks um, to R&D efficiency at Big Pharma. It, well, I mean, it has to. Hopefully it does. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I think the metric is, there's a couple metrics. One is there, there's a milestone for each program. Well, first of all, how many investments do we make? Uh, the second measurement is um, how many get to this lead declaration sort of milestone, which is, you know, maybe... 18 months into a company, and then how many they actually acquire, and another ones they acquire, how many of them actually perform in phase two, and so, and then there's a then there's a timeline and a and a budget consideration, um, uh, and you know that's pretty much how they measure it. Coy doesn't just develop companies in, in a GSK portfolio; you have other companies there as well. What what is the percentage of companies that are Coy versus GSK? Uh, there's 15 companies in better space right now. We started uh, eight companies uh, with GSK. We, we terminated two of them. So, you know, on a company basis, it's a little more than a third. Um, you know, I wish it was more like half, and we're trying to get more. But, but I think it's a good it's a good size. It's a good fraction. Um, it was really important to both us and GSK early on to make sure that we had a business outside of the relationship with GSK because. It's, it's that continued um, activity in the space, um, identifying new things, building the network, new companies, um, that actually adds value to their program because they want that innovation. They want that spark. They don't want us to be GSK West. They want us to be Koi, Avalon, and the, the, the organization that is, is sort of deep into the relationships on the West Coast and elsewhere where innovative technology takes place. COI is actually an acronym for Community of Innovation. It suggests that these aren't just individual companies in an incubator or accelerator, but that there's interplay between them. Is there some way that you seek to leverage the expertise of everyone under the roof to help or benefit each other? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that is the key to the program, is that you know, we get entrepreneurs in who are relatively young in their career, and it's, in fact, that's how I started Avalon. You're a postdoc working someplace, and you start a company, and as a, as a young postdoc, maybe you're in your 30s, um, you know, you know an awful lot about the, the biological area or the chemistry area, and you know all the people, you know all the papers, you have all that stuff, but you don't know how to drug hunt. You don't know how to deal with transitioning um, an idea to a product and a product to a clinic. And so the senior team is very, very skilled at that. And so you you have the senior group, which is spread between four or five companies. Um, and that's very important because these little companies need that, I like to call this adult supervision of somebody who's been there, done that. But they also need the the energy and 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 uh, um, the, the, the focus, the enthusiasm of someone who's like, ah, I think I'm going to change the way people have this disease forever, and this is going to work, and there's no there's no stopping. And so you put those two skill sets together, and it works great. So the benefit is you have a little company that needs that somebody who's a you know a thirty year, twenty five, thirty year vet, um, but 
really can't afford a full-time person and there is full-time work for that person. So some of these little companies who are, you know, with modest capital raise don't have the benefit of, you know, senior person who's done, you know, put 20 or 30 compounds into the clinic. Maybe he has, you know, three or four products. So it becomes extremely capital efficient and, and there's a lot of interplay across the companies because the senior team, um, while everybody's, you know, responsible for their own company, several of the employees are shared amongst the different managers. So, so you have this, it is a community. It's not a company. There's a community of innovation where people really do work together. And, you know, there are times when a company's like, okay, we need, we need extra resources for a few weeks. Let's, let's shift things around and, and put extra, you know, a couple people on this for a little bit. We can do that. And it's very, very flexible and efficient that way. Well, one of the, the big areas that have troubled the biomedical research industry is the area of translational research, moving ideas from the lab to a point where they can attract venture investment or, or a pharma deal. Has COI been able to successfully overcome this hurdle? Um, I mean, we, we certainly did with the GSK collaboration, you know, and, and that really is, is kind of a niche we live in and have for the last 30, 30 years or so, um, is identifying early stage technologies from universities and, and you know, advancing them to the point where there's an impedance match with big pharma that they can take them on board. And so we've had, you know, over the years, a lot of examples of that. And, you know, companies where we, we've sold, we sold two companies to Genentech or two programs to Genentech. We sold a program to BioMaria. And <coughs> we have a few other, you know, interesting transactions that we've done. Not all of them are, are announced. Um, but, but we've had those successes. And I think, um, the pharma industry does view us as living in that space of, of, you know, early translational to get, you know, a Eureka idea from a university and turn it into a product. Uh, it's still early days for you, but do you track metrics to measure your success? Can you say anything about spinouts or licensing deals, fundraised by quiet companies, clinical well, pipeline products? Sure. I, mean, I, think, I think the, the biggest success um, from the incubator is a company called Autonomy. Uh, it's a hearing company. And so when I started and uh, was in the incubator for a while, I, you know, it grew up, we raised a big Series B, we raised a big Series C, we raised a mezzanine round D, went public, raised about 100 million bucks, then two follow-ons as an improved product, and uh, phase threes are running on another product. So that came out of the incubator space. That came out of, you know, three guys, me and a couple other guys, and, and an idea, and, and a bunch of patents we wrote, and, and uh, it's turned into, you know, a you know, a, you know, a sizable company. It's got 100, 130, 140 employees, got a sales force. And so, you know, that's, that's a big success. We also had a couple, I guess a couple projects we licensed at Genentech. One was an uh, oncology program. Uh, one is a anti-infective program. The anti-infective program looks like it'll be in the clinic next year. Um, and then we had their program we sent to, to BioMarin. Um, and that's still in discovery, but you know it was a it was a good transaction. Um, we've got some milestones from GSK. We expect uh, one of our companies to be acquired um, later this year. So you know we are absolutely delivering, um, and we're also you know killing things when they need to be killed. We've seen a proliferation of accelerators and incubators in recent years. They vary widely in approach. Are there lessons you can point to from your experience as to what works and what doesn't in creating? An innovation ecosystem for life science companies, or are there things you've 
done here that you think others should replicate? Well, I mean, it's difficult to, to replicate things. I mean, the, the formula that works for us is all the companies in the incubator space are things that have a lot of investment. And so, you know, having that sort of unified theme, I think, makes makes this work and that, you know, the senior team is really, you know, engaged as a group moving forward. I think that the J-Labs thing works pretty well as well. Um, you, know, you have to have your own capital, but it's, you know, these short-term leases, a little bit of space, shared equipment. And so, you know, if you have an idea and, you, you know, you have a, we have a million dollars of friends and family money and you want to, you know, do some key experiments to find out, you know, that works pretty well. I think the Pfizer incubator space was a, a disaster um, where they basically had extra space and, and, and they let people come in uh, rent-free and they got an option to the, to the program um, and, um, you know, people could be there. And, you know, to me, um, basically what a company does is they give op an option to, to, to Pfizer from, you know, maybe a hundred thousand or a hundred thousand dollars a year, which is whatever rent would be. And then if, if Pfizer doesn't want it, it gets kicked out of the incubator space and, you know, it's basically a tainted asset. So Pfizer never bought that many companies out of there. Uh, and the companies that were in there weren't very successful. So that, that certainly didn't work very well. I think, you know, the academic ones don't always work too well. Um, simply because, um, there's no capital. There's, where, where, where do you get the money? Um, and, and you have to be able to, to find a way to get that money organized. And, and, um, uh, you know, it's hard to do in, a, in an academic setting. So, I mean, I, there's definitely some things that have worked. Um, and I think, you know, incubator spaces in general that revolve around either venture or pharma, um, if they set up right, will we'll have have some, some degree of success. Jay Lichter, President and CEO of Koi Pharmaceuticals. Jay, thanks so much for the time today. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.